0: Let me tell you a story. Podcast number one hundred seventeen.
1: It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago. Was the age of never mind how long. It is a truth long
2: universally acknowledged. You, know. A a know.
1: you don't know about me without you.
0: Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat. Step onto your favorite fitness machine or a lace up your walking shoes and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve.
1: Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. We interviewed Leslie Montgomery a couple months ago and talked to her about her personal journey. But it's been a while, so we will provide her bio again. In fact, I believe this one has been updated with a bit more information. Leslie is the author and ghostwriter of over a dozen books, including The Faith of Condoleezza Rice, A Parent's Guide to Spiritual Warfare, Equipping Your Kids to Win the Battle, Redemptive Suffering, Lessons Learned from the Garden of Gethsemane, Were It Not for Grace, and Engaging the Enemy, The Christian Woman's Guide to Spiritual Warfare. She is best known for writing the spiritual biography, The Faith of Condoleezza Rice, when Condoleezza was serving our nation as Secretary of State during the George W. Bush administration. Her latest book, also a spiritual biography, is titled The Faith of Mike Pence and is scheduled for release on August 6th. Leslie has been writing for Focus on the Family for over 20 years and is a former director of publications for the American Association of Christian Counselors. She is also the founder of Yeshua's Ministry, Her goal is to know Christ and make Him known through her writing, speaking, and teaching ministry. Leslie has traveled to churches and conferences around the world through her evangelical ministry, sharing the Word of God. She takes particular interest in ministering to women and youth. She's a recipient of the prestigious SME Women of Excellence Women Mentoring Women Award, given to those who impact the lives of others through their own accomplishments and who serve as an example to others of strength and fortitude in overcoming life's challenges. Leslie has been writing full-time since 1996. She studied pastoral counseling at Taylor University and is currently enrolled at Boise Bible College to further her studies in biblical languages. Leslie is a mother of four and grandmother of six children. Welcome, Leslie. We're so happy to have you back with us.
2: It's always my pleasure to see you guys. Thank you for having me.
1: I'll be generous and let Steve ask the first question.
0: Oh, I get one word in here. Oh, great. (laughs) Well, you've had quite a writing career. Let's talk about what led you to that career. What was the first time you realized you enjoyed putting pen or pencil to paper? What was that moment or that story or how'd that happen?
2: My mother says I was born with a pen in one hand and a phone in the other. I was always writing on something. The truth is the walls, bills, myself, my shoes, my clothes. Um, I think I was six or seven. I was putting on, um, plays and writing screenplays and commercials and doing it all with my stuffed animals. And, uh, Writing was just a part of who I was. I think, if you've heard my testimony that I shared with you guys previously, it was part of my therapy. Writing really was. And I think it is really what kept me sane in my dysfunctional household. And as I grew in this home, one of the things I did was I wrote poems and stories and, like I said, screenplays. When I was a sophomore in high school... I remember my English teacher telling me, now Leslie, if you just quit flirting with the boys and paid more attention to English, you could be a really good writer. Of course, I didn't listen to her. And then, like I'd shared with you guys before, I got married at 16 and left home and had two kids right away. And my husband was in the Air Force. And one of the things I did, because I loved writing, is I went to the newspaper at the Air Force bases where we were, and I volunteered to write for them for free. And what they put me writing to do was writing sports, which is really funny if you know me, because I knew nothing about sports. And I caused quite a stir because I write things like, this team conquered or smashed that team. And I, I caused a lot of competition on the bases, but it taught me the power of words. It was really a great experience for me. And, and the lesson behind that is sometimes you get a lot of free writing to get your career off the, off the ground. <laughs>
1: So you've kind of answered other questions I had. It's neat to know that you were able to use writing to help you through your childhood.
2: Did you keep a diary then? I have kept a diary since I was eight years old to this very day. It's part of just the way I just process, the way I process to God, the way I process everyday challenges. It's just, I don't, I don't know, it's just the way I am. It's the way I get things out and the way I deal with life. Wow. Since eight years old, I'm an off-and-on
1: journal, journaler. <laughs> uh, that, yeah, you must have a stack of diaries. I'm going to ask
2: another question. Let me just say, my journal started out saying, Donnie Osmond is as cute as a bug's ear. They have <laughs> since changed quite a bit since then.
1: <laughs>
0: you mean, his ears have changed. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, um, I will jump ahead. You've studied counseling and you've kind of talked about that a little bit uh, in private. So tell us how the counseling background
2: impacts your writing. Before I was a Christian, um, I went to a community college, and then I finished up in Nashville, Tennessee at a university there. And I knew what the world had to say about counseling. And I was working for the YWCA, working with victims that were victims of sexual abuse and trauma. And I really enjoyed that. That was really... um, healthy for me to work with victims who had gone through what I had gone through growing up. And then when I became a believer on November 2nd, 1993, I went back to school and went to Taylor University and studied pastoral counseling. I wanted to know what the Bible had to say about counseling. And And I dove in to the Word of God and I wanted to be able to apply what I was doing in working with people in counseling with God's Word and see where that all fit in. And immediately after I got saved, I began a prison ministry and I was able to use God's Word to minister to these women who had themselves been through trauma and trying to renew their lives and get their lives on track and also in regards to um, working with the the teenage victims of abuse that I was working with through the YWCA. And then after that, I also went on to work as a chaplain for Corrections Corporation of America and used my writing in that capacity, and and not just with writing counseling uh, pieces, but also writing manuals for Corrections Corporation of America on chaplaincy and on uh, ministering to the needs of inmates. So I've always used my talents and um, education in writing in some capacity, whether that was writing manuals or writing articles or whatever capacity I could use it in. That's just always been my outlet.
0: How did you jump into writing books?
2: That was kind of a process. I began uh, writing for Focus on the Family by submitting articles to their teen magazine called Brio. And what happened was it is that everything I submitted to them, they started publishing. And it was just interesting to me. So I started submitting nonfiction pieces and fiction pieces to them. And, and literally, they just started printing everything I sent to them. And so I started submitting work to different ministries under the umbrella of Focus on the Family, like Focus Silver 50, which was their senior ministry, and Renewing the Heart, which was their women's ministry at the time. And it was just very successful. God put it on my heart to write a piece on online addiction right when online addiction was becoming well known. And so I contacted the Center of Online Addiction in Florida and I interviewed a specialist there, which was really interesting. As I was interviewing her, she said, what magazine are you writing this this article for? And I said, I don't know. I'm just being obedient to God, told me to write this article. And she probably thought I was nuts. But I wrote this piece and sought God and said, well, what is it you, where do you want me to do with this? And he told me specifically send it to a psychologist that I was aware of. So I sent it to him. And the very next week, this man contacted me and asked me if I'd be interested in ghostwriting for him. And I said yes. And I began writing everything for him, television, radio. um, he, He wrote some cds on different topics like anxiety and grief and depression i wrote all those for him he had different publications that he wrote for i wrote all those pieces for him and he also had some videos of people talking on different topics and i went to him and i said let's take these videos and make them into books and i'll ghostwrite them for you and he said that's a great idea so i did that for him and they went well And I thought, you know, if I can write books for somebody else, I should be able to write my own books. And so from there, I went to a publisher and I presented the book, Were It Not for Grace, which is a book about 13 women, including Laura Bush, Condoleezza Rice, Beth Moore, women who had overcome tragedy in their life through their faith. And they picked it up. And said, yes, we'd be interested in publishing it. From there, I got another book deal with another publisher. Right away, I got a four-book deal with another publisher. And then my life was just taking off. It was just, it was just crazy. Um, about the time I was right in the middle of my four-book deal, I was on the speaking tour for Billy Graham and Chuck Colson. And I met my now husband. And we began dating and married. And I was finishing up the Condoleezza Rice book. And we decided that we were going to try to get pregnant uh, through fertility treatments. And we decided if I got pregnant, I would take some time off from writing books for a living and raise my children and um, until they were in school and then go back to writing books. And, and we did end up getting pregnant. And within the span of two and a half years, had two kids. And so I raised them for a couple of years. And in that time, I ended up ghostwriting another book for someone privately that was very wealthy that just wanted to make 30 copies for his family was interesting. So I did that project and I still wrote some pieces for magazines, but I didn't write any other books. And then in the summer of 2017, my kids were getting ready to go back in school that following August. And I went to prayer and I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, I, I think it's time for me to get back into the thick of things and write another book. And I prayed and asked him, you know, to bring a book deal to me. And two weeks later, I had this dream where God tells me to write the faith of Mike Pence. Now, let me tell you about that. That's a really interesting thing because after I wrote the faith of Condoleezza Rice, I was approached to write the faith of another political leader. I agreed to write the book. I knew that they had professed their faith in being a Christian and their spouse had proclaimed to be a born-again Christian. So I thought this would be a good deal. And I dove into this project. I had access to their inner circle, began interviewing people and doing research on this person. And six weeks later, I had to come back to this publisher and say, listen, there's no external evidence of this person's faith. There's, there's not only not a book to write. There's not a page to write. I'm not the person to write this book. So here I am 10 years later, and God has put on my heart to write the faith of Mike Pence. And I'm really honestly skeptical. And I'm thinking, I know nothing about this man, except for the fact that he claims to be a Christian and he's our vice president. But I got up in the middle of the night. I started doing research on him. I started putting together a list of people I'd like to interview. And I began praying that God would send a publisher to me. And let me tell you why. Because if you're a writer, and Becky would know this very well, the worst part about being an author is finding a publisher for your book. It's agonizing because let me tell you the process and this will tell you what a miracle this is. The process is you submit a book proposal to a, to a publisher. They maybe get back to you in four to six months. When they get back to you, they say, yes, we're interested in this book, but it has to go before our committee. It goes before a committee in three to four months. They say, yes, we're still interested in it, but it has to go through a final committee. That goes through a final committee in three to four months. So you probably don't even get A a contract for nine to 12 months down the road if they like your book. And so it takes a long time to get a book contract usually. So here I am, God's put it on my heart to write The Faith of Mike Pence. I'm asking God to bring a publisher to me. So I'm praying, asking God to bring this publisher to me. The next morning, I get an email from Christine Whitaker of Whitaker House. I have never published a book with them never published anything with them. And she invites me to send any nonfiction book proposals I have to her. So I send the Faith of Mike Pence book proposal to her. Two days later, she writes back to me and says, we're interested in publishing this book. In less than a week, I have a book deal. That never happens in publishing. This has got to be the world's shortest book contract that's ever happened. And so I dive into this book.
1: We will have Leslie read from The Faith of Mike Pence in a few minutes. But first, I would like to know how she picks
2: her topics for, or how in the past, she picked her topics for her other books. My topics for my books have always been something I felt like I had knowledge about. The three books I had ghostwritten for this psychologist I was writing for were about different struggles that people had had in their lives, whether it was marriage or growing in their faith um, and other issues. And so when I wrote Word Not For Grace, I wanted that book to be about struggles that women had had that they had overcome. A whole bunch of different struggles. So 13 different struggles, 13 different issues. There were was a woman who had struggled with being a lesbian who had come out of that lifestyle. There was um, Condoleezza Rice who had really grappled with the loss of her parents. There was Laura Bush who had accidentally caused an accident by blowing through a stop sign and killing a boy that she'd actually dated in high school. And so the and then there was Beth Moore who uh, had been sexually abused growing up. And so there were all these issues in that book. And if you know me, or you've had followed any of the work I've done, it's always about how to overcome tragedy in life and, and um, how to how to overcome you know, how to redeem your life, how God can use your life for great things. Like Romans eight twenty eight says that God can um, use your life for, for his glory. And, and I'm evidence of that. And so that's really my heart is, you know, God can use you and your life for his glory. And so that's, that was my heart on that book. The spiritual warfare books, Engaging the Enemy and Appearance Guide to Spiritual Warfare is the one, the things that led me to write those books is I was really involved in the new age and in witchcraft before I became a Christian. So I was very aware of the demonic aspect of spiritualism as an unbeliever. I was really involved in goddess worship and spiritual guides and tarot reading and all of that. And so when I when I became a, a born-again Christian, one of the first things I came across was a book by Dr. Ed Murphy called The Handbook on Spiritual Warfare. And so I read that book, and Dr. Murphy and I, he, he was in Africa doing ministry, and he and I began writing back and forth. And he began to really mentor me through the mail. And then Neil Anderson, who wrote The Bondage Breaker, Uh, Became a mentor of mine and and really counseled me through how to break chains from generational bondage and chains from your from your past and I really felt like hey I have a message to share here so I wrote those books and then and then I wrote Redemptive Suffering which has a lot of my story briefly in and out and how you overcome that whole book is about Christ's example in the Garden of Gethsemane on how to overcome difficulty so we learn through his example in the garden of how to overcome our tragedies today. And um, that's what that was about. And then the Condoleezza book, let me tell you, I have fallen in love with writing spiritual biographies. And one of the things about Condoleezza, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of Condoleezza's extraordinary life and how she has broken all these incredible uh, barriers, not not just as an African-American woman, but just in, in government. But one of the greatest things about her story is her parents. I mean, the way that they raised her deliberately spiritually, the way they deliver, they raised her deliberately um, educationally, the way they, they raised her deliberately asking her to challenge them and to, to debate her on different topics, including the Bible. They welcomed that, and they wanted her beliefs to be her own. And, and I walked away from writing that book going, wow, you know, I really want to make sure... I raised my children this way so that they have the same solid foundation spiritually, academically, emotionally, and mentally that, that her parents gave her. It was, it, it was a wonderful book, and I've had a, a different experience with the faith of Mike Pence, but just as, just as powerful in a different way.
0: What did you learn from the Mike Pence book?
2: How much time do you have? <laughs> you know, there were just so many great things I I learned uh, from this book. And I, I can say that I walked away from writing this book inspired, encouraged, and challenged in my own faith in many ways. One of the things that... I found in writing this book was that that writing that walking in Christ is really a decision that he made at a point in his life. So this is part of Mike Pence's story. You know, he grew up in a strong loving family that was a Catholic home. Roman Catholic home where he was nurtured in his faith and they provided him a really strong foundation. Um, But he grew up feeling like, even though that was valuable to him, he went to Catholic school and he felt like really that religion was for other people. And so he kind of strayed away from that in high school. And then when he went to college at Hanover College his freshman year, he started meeting. Other young adults who talked about having a personal relationship with Christ, and he had never experienced that before. And he ends up making a, a profession of faith at a um, Ithacus concert, which is like a which is like a Christian Woodstock. And um, he comes back and he and he lives this Christian lifestyle for a few years, and he ends up getting married, and he runs uh, his first and congressional race and loses but it was a really close race he was only 29 years old and then he goes into his second race and um it was right after his first race and he runs into his second race and he hits a he hits a, a crossroad in the race and he's faced with two decisions either i handle this god's way and walk in this righteously or i do it washington's way And I let the consultants lead me, and I handle this the worldly way. And to his detriment, handles it in the worldly way. And he gives in to the consultants, and he goes nasty. And he talks negatively and slanders his opponent. And it ends up being, to this day, what is called the nastiest campaign that's ever been held in Indiana. And at the end of that, something incredible happens. His friends call it a really dark period of time for him. It's not something that took days. It's not something that took weeks. It's something that he he went through for a number of months where he just really struggled and wrestled with God because the conviction of the way he handled that as a man of God came down on him. And God was dealing with him and saying, the way you handled that was not who I called you to be. And it really caused him to question who he was as a man, who God had called him to be, what kind of leader he wa- he wanted to be from that point going forward, and what kind of legacy he wanted to leave behind. And when he came out of that, he two things really powerful things happening. One was not only did he repent uh, with God, he went to God and asked for forgiveness for the way he handled it. He went to his opponent, Phil Sharp, and he asked his forgiveness personally, which is just powerful. We just don't do that uh, when we hurt somebody. We we may ask God's forgiveness, but we don't usually go to somebody else we've hurt and apologize for the things we do. Even, even in the body of Christ, that doesn't happen very often. And that within itself is powerful. But one of the most powerful things he does is, from that point forward, what we often want to do is we want to take our sin and put it under the rug and hide it. But he didn't do that. He ends up writing this national essay called The Confessions of a Negative Campaigner. He puts it on he frames it and puts it on his wall from that point going forward he references it many times to the people he mentors other politicians who come to him and talk to him about running campaigns he gives them a copy and says whatever you do don't run a negative campaign he's you know everywhere he goes he's talking about the mistakes he made he's advocating for people not to make those same mistakes And he's not hiding what he's did. He's trying to teach people not to make the same mistakes he's done. And that to me was really powerful and challenged me to think about what ways in my own life have I been avoiding taking responsibility for things that I have done, and where do I need to allow God to use my mistakes moving forward to help other people, to mentor other people, to be sure that other people aren't making the same mistakes in my life? And that was one of the most powerful things that I learned from the faith of Mike Pence. But another thing was is that he has been walking in politics for now for 19 years as a congressional. He he started out in. Um, as a congressional representative in Indiana became the Indiana governor for 4 years and now is our vice president for all of those years he's never once wavered in his policy or in his faith and a lot of times politicians go into politics and they meet with lobbyists or they make deals with other politicians and they waver. Maybe they're for, they're for or against abortion and then they change their mind a year or two down the road or they're for or against this and they change their mind down the road. And you see that all the times. So you're thinking, didn't this guy make a promise on the campaign trail to do this, but now he's doing something different. Mike Pence has never done that. When he went to Congress, he told his friends, Pray for me that my yes will be yes and my no will be no. And he stood by that. If you look at his pattern since he became uh, a congressman all the way through today, you see that there's no change in his life. He has been consistent on issues. He's always been pro life. He's always been the same on every single issue all these years. He's never wavered, he's always stood by what he has always stood by and always advocated for God's principles every time. And I'm always challenged when people do that in my own life. You know, where am I? It's so easy by the peer pressure of the world to want to give in to being politically correct instead of being biblically correct. And that really challenges me. Those are just a couple of ways.
1: I'd like to know about your ministry to women and children.
2: So I've always had a heart for young girls because I was a young girl who was abused and so I have a re- a lot of compassion and empathy for young children and young adults who are who have been through difficult circumstances and of course, that leads to adults in their early years and women who have had issues and, and people who are drawn to me typically are people who have been through difficult times in life, whether that's abuse or marriage or or divorces or tragedy in their life. And I feel strongly that God has gifted me in a way to minister to that group of, that demographic of people. And he has always blessed me in enabling me to be able to minister to that group successfully. And there are several young 20-somethings that I mentor to this day that I just find so much joy in helping them become the women of God that God has called them to be. I I honestly find joy in loving them and empowering them and encouraging them to be who God has called them to be. And I I feel that way about my my children and their friends as well. I I just pour love into them. And when I see children, I see their potential and I and I see that I, I want to help them become who God has. I mean that's just something that's in me how can I help this young person become all that they are capable of being what can I say or do in their lives to help them fulfill that and so that's really where my heart is I I don't feel that calling to men <laughs> I don't even have the way to say that I just you know I, I I think that there's barriers there for me spiritually probably because of my past and um, issues've I've had with men as far as um, crossing that barrier. But I do have um, young men in their 20s that I have I have counseled over the years that still come back to me every once in a while and say, Hey, I'm in this tough situation. What do I do here? Um, but predominantly, my ministry is to uh, young women and children who who need encouragement and mentoring. I will say that our ministry does support um, victims uh, of sex trafficking and domestic violence victims because those, I'd never experienced sex trafficking growing up, but I did experience sexual abuse. I, I did experience domestic violence growing up, and I experienced that in relationships as an adult. So, I, I have a heart for those, those individuals and I don't believe you get stuck in your, in your past or what you experienced. I believe God can bring you up out of that and propel you to fulfill great things through him.
0: How did you get into studying biblical languages?
2: One of the questions I'm always asked when I'm being interviewed about a book is, what are you reading? And I'm one of those nerdy people that tells the truth, and I say, commentaries. So I'm really one of those people who loves to read research and dig deep. And um, when I read a story of the Bible... I want to know the story behind the story. I want to know what every word means in the original language because I want to understand what Jesus said, what God said, what it means. I want to make sure I'm not taking God's word out of context, and I also want to make sure other people aren't taken out of context. And so when I became a Christian on on November second, nineteen 1993, someone said something really important to me. They said, never believe anything anybody ever says to you about God's word. They weren't telling me to mistrust people. They were saying, dig in, find out the truth yourself. So one of the things I bought was a Greek and Hebrew study Bible. And in the Greek and Hebrew study Bible, it gives you the numbers that are associated with with the Greek and Hebrew words. So you're able to look in the back of the Bible, see the word, find out what the word really means, and, and the definition of the word. And so when I got saved, I began studying Greek and Hebrew as I read that Bible. Now I think I'm on my third Bible. I have underlined, made notes, and I have studied it in that capacity now for, I think, let me see, this is 2019, okay, since for what is it, 27 years now or something like that, that I've been a Christian. So I've been studying it on my own for that long. And I've learned a lot. But I decided to go to Boise Bible College to sit under the counsel of a professor who could really teach me his his knowledge on the topic so I could get a better understanding.
1: Very cool. And that's great to know that when you are speaking, you are speaking with authority. When, when you use God's Word, you know what you um, are really saying, or you know what God's Word really says uh, before you proclaim it. So I think now would be a really great time to hear you read from your upcoming book. It's been coming for a long time, but finally, release date is August 6th, so we'd love to hear an excerpt.
2: Chapter 12, The Unforgettable 107th Congress On the morning of Tuesday, September 11, 2001, having served in Congress for just nine months, Mike headed to a House Agricultural Committee meeting at the Capitol after having breakfast with a member of his staff. Without warning, at 8.46 a.m., American Airlines Flight 11 crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center in New York City. Government officials thought it was a fluke accident until minutes later when United Airlines Flight 175 rammed into the South Tower. Chaos ensued, and just as the shell-shocked Americans were still grasping for breath, American Airlines Flight 77 hit the Pentagon less than an hour after the first crash. I got into the office right after the first plane had hit the World Trade Center, recalls Pipe Goss. When I walked in, everyone was glued to the television. Mike was in the office, just across the street from the Capitol. The memories of that day seem like they were 15 minutes ago to me, Mike says. I'd heard about the first aircraft hitting the World Trade Center's towers, and I was in my office when my assistant, Jennifer, dropped the phone and reeled back and said, The Pentagon's been hit. Our office was about the fourth floor across the street from the Capitol. Immediately, I thought it would be appropriate for us to move out of the building against the possibility of an even wider attack on the Capitol. There was no word for evacuation, but I told the team, we need to move out, but we stopped for a quick prayer. The Pences attended a church in Washington with a lot of people that worked at the Pentagon, and we just knew that there was heartbreaking loss of life and bravery under the way, and we just prayed for one of those quick prayers," Mike says. He told his staff, move away from the capitol but for my part i felt like i needed to report for duty mike recalls and so i walked into the capitol grounds and the sights and sounds of that day i'll never forget half the sky was filled with mud brown columns of smoke billowing out of the pentagon and aircraft jet aircraft flying at low levels sirens everywhere pandemonium mike was concerned about what else to expect officials knew there was a fourth plane and suspected that its target was the U.S. Capitol, so they prepared to evacuate. I will always remember the scenes of that day, watching the Capitol complex being evacuated, Mike vividly recalls. It was as though the building was literally hemorrhaging with people running in every direction. At some point, we got word that we had to evacuate, and they pulled the alarms in the building, remembers Pipegrass. We prayed together first, and then we all evacuated, leaving everything in the office. Everyone ran from the building, and we kept running for blocks and blocks because we thought one of the next planes would hit the Capitol building or one of the House office buildings that we were in. Mike's chief of staff, Bill Smith, was in the meeting two blocks from the White House. The secretary rolled a television screen into the room and said, Mr. Smith, I think you and your group will wanna see this, recalls Smith. Just then, the second plane hit the tower. Then a message came over my government-issued Blackberry from Mike saying, where are you? I told him and he said, you need to get out of there because we think another plane may be coming towards the White House. We communicated back and forth with each other over our Blackberries throughout the morning. We were praying for each other, our families and country Obviously, we were all concerned about what was actually happening. That morning, and Mike's words are etched into his friend, Jay Stegger's memory. He looks out from the Capitol across the National Mall, past the Washington Monument towards the Pentagon. Pitch black smoke was billowing. Michael has this catharsis that the country is completely vulnerable, says Stegger. The first thing all the congressmen were told is, spread out, go home, go somewhere, but don't stay at the Capitol. Mike immediately pushed back and said, where is leadership gathering? And he had to ask the question several times because they were saying, Congressman, don't worry about that, just go. But he was insistent, and he finally got someone to tell him where leadership was meeting, and he immediately went to that place. There was a reason Mike was fearless. Standing there on that plaza, in the midst of that pandemonium, and in the days that followed that, Mike says, I thought of that verse from Isaiah 26.3, that says the Lord will surround in perfect peace the man who trusts in Him. And I can honestly tell you, my wife will attest to it, that I stood there on the Capitol grounds. I knew we were all going to be okay. I had peace in the midst of that pandemonium, and I'll carry that the rest of my life. But it was a peace that even in the midst of that, that God's grace was extending, not only to my little family, but to this nation. Mike joined the House and Senate leaders who were meeting at the United States Capitol Police Headquarters across the street from the Capitol. Charged with protecting the United States Congress, USCP is the only full-service federal law enforcement agency responsible to the legislative branch of the United States government. It was overwhelmed with what was occurring and its inability to reach all of its police officers on the ground. U.S.C.P. had handheld and car radios on its analog system that didn't work in several dead spots around congressional buildings. Mike gets there, and he was a young congressman, a first-termer, says Steger. So here he is, just a rookie, and he's insisting on getting with leadership at this moment of devastation. He's shocked, but thinking clearly, saying, I have a responsibility. I'm an elected congressman. I'm not running for the hills, and I'm going to fulfill my duties here. He gets to the office, and leadership can't make calls because the cell lines are all jammed. Michael had a BlackBerry at the time. One of the leaders is saying, Why can't we get a line out? We've got to make a call. And this little rookie congressman is over there getting messages out because he had a BlackBerry that runs on a different wavelength. So Michael could get out, but leadership couldn't. Mike was making calls to Karen and his staff, assuring them of his safety, making sure they were safe, and praying with them all. As he was communicating with them, Mike and the other members of Congress with him were told their lives were in danger. Shortly after I arrived, the chief of police set the phone back down and informed the leaders gathered there that there was a plane inbound for the Capitol. And he said, it was 12 minutes out, Mike says, recalling the threat on their lives. In that moment, the room became silent. And as people began to make plans, I found myself looking out the window where just across the street was the Capitol dome with that majestic statue of freedom standing on top of it, a dome that's a symbol for the ideas of this nation of the freedom and democracy for all the world. Mike prayed silently as they all held their breath with their lives in the balance. So we waited, Mike said, it was the longest 12 minutes of my life, but it turned into 13 minutes, then 14. Then we were informed that the plane had gone down in a field in Pennsylvania. Selflessly, the 33 passengers and seven crew members of United Airlines Flight 93 fought back against their four terrorists. All on board lost their lives as the plane crashed in rural Somerset County, Pennsylvania. Mike says the 40 heroes of Flight 93 were men and women who looked evil squarely in the eye and without regard to their personal safety they rushed forward to save lives. Years later, moved to tears by the heroism of the passengers and crew of Flight 93, Mike would say, I always believed that I and many others in our nation's capital were able to get home that day to hug our families because of the courage and selflessness of the heroes of Flight 93. The American people will forever be inspired by their courage and resolve. We honor them by remembering them and by doing everything in our power as a nation to prevent such evil from ever reaching our shores again. On the afternoon of September 11, 2001, the day that simply became known as 9-11, Mike talked to a reporter back home in Indiana from his DC area home in Arlington. We need to fashion a response that is swift and violent, Mike said. We know where these people live. We know who the likely suspects are. I am hoping that the sun doesn't come up again in in that part of the world without smoke billowing from one of their targets. House leaders knew Osama bin Laden's organization was likely behind the attacks because of a phone call and a fax that read, ATTENTION, BIN LADEN WILL DESTROY YOUR capital." Mike urged Americans to pray, adding, They should be confident in the strength of our national leadership and our president. We will get through this. We will prevail, and we will respond." Mike made sure every one of his staff members were safely evacuated and in secure locations. He prayed for those who had lost their lives, their family members, and the safety of American citizens. Through the whole thing, he kept his cool in his demeanor, says Bill Smith. He knew God was in control. Sharing on the power of prayer, Mike said, we are to approach the throne of grace with God, and we are informed that in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, we are to present our request to God. We are commanded to pray for those who have been entrusted with responsibility and leadership. One of my favorite verses is, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, which comes from 1 Samuel twelve twenty-three. The author of the universe The author of Life Hears. The ultimate authority is always available. C.S. Lewis said memorably, I am not always sure that prayer changes things, but I am always sure prayer changes me. One of the most compelling things I've ever read out of the writings and words of President Lincoln are when he said, I've often been driven to my knees in this position when I have come to the conclusion that I have nowhere else to go. Lincoln was a man of prayer. Prayer changed him, and he saved the nation.
0: Those are great words. Thank you, Leslie, for joining us. It's been great hearing you again.
2: Thank you, Steve and Becky, for having me again. Great to see you guys.
0: And that's going to do it for now.
2: Thanks so much for listening.
1: Until next time, be sure to live your story to the fullest.
0: Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.